This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. again everybody and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 180. Is the show going in a different direction? Absolutely not. Today on our show, David O'Malley from the Tri-State Warbird Museum. So our airplane is actually one of the airplanes used to film the show. And the way you can identify for sure that you're looking at ours when you're watching the show is it became the the airplane got shot down trailing smoke behind the trees airplane. They bolted a smoke generator on the side of the airplane so that they could simulate it being shot down and trailing smoke. The Tri-State Warbird Museum is located in Claremont County, and as the name would imply, is dedicated to military aircraft. They specialize in World War II airplanes and have almost a dozen in their collection. David joined us to talk about how the collection got started, how a few former Tuskegee airmen fit into the whole thing, what goes into restoring a plane, including why some are much easier to restore than others, and a whole lot more. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now, let's talk to David O'Malley about the Tri-State Warbird Museum. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. The place we usually start is with your Cincinnati bona fides. Uh, are you from Cincinnati originally? Yeah, uh, I was born in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, oh, okay. My family moved to Cincinnati when I was eight. Aha. So were you always interested in, in, in war aircraft growing up in aviation, or did that come later in life? How did you get interested in it? Um, it aviation's been my father's lifelong passion, so I was... I think probably three or four weeks old the first time I was on an airplane that he was flying. And so it's sort of by genetics, sort of by being... So he was a pilot? uh, A hobbyist pilot. He wanted to be an airline pilot in the late 50s, early 60s. And through kind of the world's aligning and misaligning for whatever bigger picture reasons there were, right before he graduated high school, he was going to sign up. He wanted to be an Eastern Airlines pilot. Uh, Right before he graduated, Eastern changed their minimum job requirements to two years of college. So he went to college with the express purpose being to meet that qualification criteria. Um, And by the time he was wrapping up his second year, the market was so competitive that they'd moved to requiring a four-year degree. So he was out of money, so he started selling insurance. And by the time he finished his second year of college and was had he'd started to realize a fair bit of success in the insurance industry and he enjoyed it. And he was making more money doing that than he would have been as a first year guy in the airlines. So he decided aviation was gonna be the hobby, the passion, the thing he did on the weekends, and insurance seems to be his calling worked out pretty well. He was pretty successful in life and you know, treated aviation as a as a hobby and a 
lifetime passion on the side. So he was a private pilot then? Correct, yeah. Okay. And you are also a private pilot? No, I, I flew when I was a kid. I flew before college. I went to college in North Carolina and found race cars and decided oh. that I was going to turn money into noise with race car engines instead of airplane ones. Okay. So so do you have a uh, what we call a day job then, or is the museum your full-time commitment? The museum is my full-time job. Okay, cool. So well, let's get to the museum then. How did the museum get started? I know it, it's been in business for quite a while, like the early 2000s it got rolling, but was it in existence before then? And like, did you have a collection and there, there wasn't a home and who acquired this collection? How did it all get started? So it's, it's really all centered on my dad. Okay. He, he flew, he's flown his entire life. He's flown everything from very simple aircraft to uh, corporate jets as a hobby, personal use type of deal. But he grew. He was born in the mid '40s, so the aircraft of World War II were these kind of posters on the wall, aspirational things to kids when he was growing up. So he had always idolized the P-51 Mustang, grew to love aviation, grew to become an accomplished pilot, and always dreamed of one day flying that you know singular bucket list airplane of a P-51 Mustang. Many people would say even in the 40s, it was nearing the pinnacle of piston-powered aviation. So he passioned as a hobby on the side and eventually got to a point in life where flying military warbird aircraft was attainable for him, and he decided that he was going to pursue it. So he purchased an AT-6 Texan, which would have been the advanced trainer that most pilots would have been in before they ended up in whatever they were flying in service. And we flew that to air shows and flew it around. We flew it to, you know, nearby airports and had the hundred dollar hamburger thing started to kind of get in tune with and meet a lot of people in the warbird industry with his ultimate goal being acquire and fly a P-51. He found a guy in Huntington, Indiana, his name is Paul Redlick. He was the T6 guy in the country. Developed a relationship with him. He and he and his wife ended up going to Fairbanks, Alaska to pick up my dad's T6. Developed a relationship there. And once it seemed like my dad was at the proficiency level with the T6 that getting jumping making the jump to Mustang made sense. He started looking for airplanes. And the market's kind of weird. But back then there were there were a fair number of Mustangs for sale, but they were either many, many years on from their restoration and starting to get tired or had very light restorations done on them and really needed to be taken all the way apart, had corrosion issues, all this kind of thing. Or they were a 10 tenths Oshkosh show winner quality brand new restoration that the person who restored it wanted to get every last dollar of their investment out of it. And so they were just mega, mega expensive. So we kind of got fed up with the search process and Paul Redlick, the guy who retrieved and worked on the T6, said, well, I can build you one. We'll just go buy a project, restoration project, and then you can have the airplane you want. You know, it's everything that needs to be tended to is, is, is well done. You can, we can control the work. You'll have a brand new perfect airplane when you're done. So 
we ended up finding a, a Mustang project. It was kind of a conglomeration of three or four airframes that was owned by an estate, the guy who collected all of these parts and started the restoration process and passed away before, well before it was completed. Bought the project from the estate, shipped it to Huntington, Indiana, where Paul's shop was at the time, and started getting to work on restoring that airplane. Through all of those machinations, we you know, met a lot more people in the Warbird world. And, and from that, those kind of associations and relationships, my dad came to have lunch with Herb Heilbrunn and John Lair. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. They're kind of local World War II veteran heroes. They've now both since passed away. But Herb was a B-17 pilot. Uh, John Lair was a Tuskegee Airman. And my dad had lunch with these two guys. Uh, this was in the 2000, 2001 timeframe. Um, so they were in their probably early 80s. But their story is amazing. Herb was a B-17 pilot, and he on multiple occasions would say that his bacon was saved by a Tuskegee Airman pilot. But because of the segregation of World War II, he never had the opportunity to, to see or interact with or, most importantly, say thank you to the African-American aviators that he attributed him still being on the planet at the end of the war to in a couple different situations. So many years on in life after the war, he moved home and he came back home and moved on with his life and sort of coming to grips with his, his own humanity and realized that he never, never got to say thank you. And that was something that he wanted to do. And so he sought out a Tuskegee Airmen reunion and just pure happenstance meeting met John Lair. The two of them get to talking, realize they're both from Cincinnati and they both lived on the same street and they stood shoulder to shoulder in their third grade class picture. That's crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's just one of those crazy situations of life where these two shared all of these experiences and just happened to meet one day and struck out a really great lifelong friendship from there on out. John had been going and speaking to schools about the, his experience as an African-American in World War II and dealing with prejudice and the segregation of, of World War II. And Herb wanted to join him. And the two of them ended up writing, co-writing a book together and then going around to local school groups talking about what racism, racism was like in World War II and, and trying to share their story in a way that was, that was educational and, and gave some perspective to kids that otherwise wouldn't have gotten a story like that. And they were really successful because they have this like third grade class picture story that's so, you know, serendipity, wild coincidence type deal that it really gets people's attention. So my dad had lunch with these two guys and he sat there and just listened to him talk for probably an hour, hour and a half, just, you know, gobsmacked at the things that they were talking about. And he asked them to come speak at my school. I went to Cincinnati Country Day. He was the chair of the board at the time. And so he was fairly confident he could say, hey, I want to do this assembly where these two World War II veterans come talk. Is that okay? And they said, sure. So they came to talk to the school and they did it in, I think, two segments. They talked to the high school 
then they talked to the lower school and the middle school. So first through eighth grade was, I think, the first their first session it was like an auditorium with 358 through 13 or 14 year olds. And we were both kind of as it was the time where the assembly was going to start was approaching, kind of looked at each other and thought, man, I don't know if eight-year-old is really going to care what these two 80-year-old men have to say. And we were entirely wrong. So they started speaking, and the place went totally silent for the entire time they talked, and they talked for well over an hour. And that, that was kind of the, the driving impetus for the foundation of the museum was that moment was realizing that these two guys had a story that was incredible, but it was one that was so unlike anything that these kids had been exposed to before that they, they were enthralled in it, but, but they weren't getting any of, of that human version of history from textbooks and classrooms that there was this part of world war II history the human part, the story-based part that, that wasn't coming across in classroom learning. So you combine that need that he saw with a passion for aviation, a T6 and a Mustang project that was you know, moving along towards completion. And he had this idea for this museum where we would preserve the aircraft, let the aircraft tell their own stories and give World War II veterans a place for their stories to be shared and to live on past their days. Because even back then, World War II veteran population was shrinking. Now there's very few left, but even 15 or 20 years ago, when this idea really happened, they were, they were already dying at a, at a depressing rate. And so it was, that's one thing that probably helped give him the kick in the pants he needed to really to really make this thing go was if you're going to do it you got to do it now because if you wait around all these stories are going to be lost and so then how did the museum itself get going did you have you had the 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 mustang i guess that your dad had been working on but uh, how did you go about acquiring more aircraft and kind of putting the museum together that was that was all him and the people around him that he was capable of corralling to uh follow him on this crazy idea. So the first step was Paul Redlick, the guy that was restoring the Mustang. My dad asked him if he wanted to move to Cincinnati and, and run the museum. He pretty quickly said yes. And we started getting to work on the process of finding land. We, there was land at Claremont County airport that was available for sale and made a lot of sense. So we bought land. Uh, at this point, basically everything was a singular donor of my dad. And we bought some land, started figuring out what the initial building was going to look like. And then in about seven to nine months from the decision point of, okay, let's try and make this thing go to uh, breaking ground on the initial building. Paul brought, I think, two or three, I think three guys with him, mechanics with him from Indiana and we started to get some volunteers from the local aviation community and we built the building which was the initial building was 3,500 square feet of office and museum space a 10,000 square foot hangar and a 2,000 square foot 
shop for tools and machine tools and storage and all that kind of stuff. And then we, it's, it seems like it didn't happen very quickly, but it, but I guess it did. Uh, we started acquiring some airplanes. Uh, we bought a, I guess we finished the Mustang. My dad had found a FG1D Corsair project. Oh, that like the Goldwing kind from uh, Bob Bob Black Sheep? Yeah. Oh actually, yeah, that's a classic. So our airplane was actually one of the airplanes used to film the show. No way! I've yeah, got to come so out there now. Yeah, my brother and I, when we were kids, we loved that show. So you've seen our airplane a bunch then, and the way you can identify for sure that you're looking at ours when you're watching the show is it became the it, the airplane got shot down trailing smoke behind the trees airplane. Okay, oh, okay. So they, they bolted a smoke generator on the side of the airplane so that they could simulate it being shot down and trailing smoke. Ah. So anytime there's an airplane getting shot down, it was ours. I know there's an episode where uh, the Robert Conrad character, Pappy Boynton, I think he does get shot down. Or one of them does. Yeah. I think more than one occasion, more than one of them got shot down, and they're all back at the island worried about them. But yeah, so, I get, so the plane that they're actually showing in the long shot is the one that is now sitting at the Claremont County Airport. That's so cool. Yeah, that's ours. All right. So that's the second plane you get, and then what happens next? We we got a Stearman, which is a, a primary trainer. It's a uh, open cockpit biplane, and I think one of the initial goals was to kind of use the airplanes to show what it would have been like for a 20 year old kid to enlist, never been in an airplane, maybe never even seen an airplane back back then, and get thrown into basic primary and advanced flight training and very quickly rise through that, you know, set of, of training curriculum, I guess. Uh, and then still 20, 21 years old, getting a, a single engine fighter or a two or four engine bomber and go abroad and, and fight a war. So we had an advanced trainer at T6. It seemed like a natural thing to get to get the primary trainer so that you could see the, the process by which we trained these young kids to become aviators. Following that, we got a TBM Avenger, a naval carrier-based torpedo bomber. It's important to note that both the Stearman and the, the TBM Avenger were completed restorations. If you came to the museum today, they look largely exactly as they did when we got them. Uh, we've done a fair bit of preventative maintenance, repairs, stuff to make them more accurate, added squadron logos and stuff like that on, in the case of the TBM. But those were both airplanes that you go, come see them now. That's basically how they were when we got them. And then I think the next airplane we got was the B-25, our biggest airplane. It's a B-25 bomber. It was the second to last one manufactured, so it never saw combat. But it's a medium bomber, served all over the place. That type of aircraft served all over the place. Probably the thing that most people would recognize as a B-25 role from World War II would be the, the Doolittle Raid. So the Doolittle Raid was the first American offensive on mainland Japan in early 1942 following an attack on Pearl Harbor. Jimmy Doolittle devised a strategy to take B-25 airplanes and put them on an aircraft carrier 
and drive the carrier out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean and take take off from the carrier with these bombers, 16 of them, I believe, and drop bombs on Japan. It's one of those things that when you're familiar with the B-25 and you can sit there and look at one and think, my God, how did that idea come to be or even come to a point where it was being considered? Because just looking at the airplane, you, you cannot imagine that it would be possible. Well, you bring up a, a point. Um, I have in my notes here. We were talking about the uh, the biplane you guys have. I, I watch uh, Pluto TV a lot, which is the free TV service you can watch on cable and on your smart TV. And uh, they run a lot of. Uh, they have a documentary uh, section, and then there's always a World War One and or World War Two documentary on all the time, at least one. So uh, yeah. I've been watching a lot of those, and uh, I was watching one the other day, and they pointed, and I knew this before, but I kind of they walked through it. Is that Warcraft from World War One and Warcraft from World War Two are really, really different because they're just starting to use airplanes in combat in World War One, and in in France and England and Germany. But it really doesn't. It's a whole different matter where it's it's hugely important in World War Two. It's only in the closing overs really of World War One that they finally get all the kinks worked out and how to get the guns from shooting through the propellers and all that. Yeah. yeah so how quickly does it develop from World? Is, is is it in other words when there's not a war? Is Warcraft still developed pretty quickly because they're never going to need them for defense? Or how did that progress? It's a really great point. So one of the, the things that now, if you come to the museum now, you can see in, in a really big way is that there was a huge technological advancement between World War I and World War II. There probably, I don't know how you quantify this actually, but there probably was just as much need-based engineering developments during World War II as there were in the, the lull between the wars. So we've got a P-40 that we restored in-house. It was a late 30s design by Curtis Aircraft in Buffalo, New York. And by the time American involvement was in full swing in World War II, it was largely obsolete. Things like the P-51 Mustang, which were developed during the war, for a specific purpose, really outshone the the technology and the aerodynamics involved in the P-40 in a pretty big way. So we figured out, we, the Allied forces in general, figured out that long-range bomber escort in all the way into and out of Germany, occupied France, wherever, uh, was extremely important. But we didn't have an airplane a fighter bomber escort airplane that was efficient enough to go all the way to the target and all the way back. And so when you go two thirds of the way there and, you know, pat the bombers on the button, wish them luck and turn around, you, you get huge, huge losses, bomber losses that is. And so the Mustang, which is an engineering marvel on its own, especially when you consider that it went from a blank sheet of paper to a flying prototype in like three, three and a half months. And there was no such thing as computers back then. They were using a pencil and paper and a slide rule to make this airplane. The airplane was hugely efficient compared to things like the P-40. And it was able to efficiently use fuel and aerodynamics on wing profiles that were much better uh, so that they could escort bombers all the way to the target and back and keep them safe. To circle back and answer your question, there was a huge, I mean, you're right, there was a huge gap 
in what the airplanes of World War II were and what the airplanes were at the beginning of World War II, World War I and World War II. But I think just as much development happened during the war because it was necessary, which is a really interesting point. And how many aircraft do you have at the museum currently? Eleven. And they're all World War II except for the biplane primarily? The biplane was used in World War II. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was used throughout the entire war as a primary trainer. So oh, okay. I mean, it was. That's one of the neat things about the fact that we've got an example of all of them uh, is you can see the progressive approach to throwing power, weight, speed, complexity of systems at a trainee in an incremental way, so that. So the basic trainer, which would be something like a Piper Cub, or the primary trainer are lightweight, low power, low speed, no hydraulic system, no landing gear to operate, no flaps. It's a stick and rudders and a throttle, and you learn how to fly a flying machine. And then once you get out of basic and primary, you start getting into more complicated airplanes with more power, more weight, variable pitch propeller horsepower, flaps, retractable gear, all of those things that make it harder and harder to fly or more complex to fly anyways. And you can see that by looking at the airplanes. The the Stearman biplane is very simple. It's fabric-covered tubes. It's a fixed gear, wooden propeller, 200 horsepower, lightweight flying machine. You get in that and you learn to fly. You don't learn to do any of the things that make faster or more maneuverable or anything like that just learn to fly the basics the primary factors involved in flight and then we we started throwing more tools in their tool belt that they had to sort sort through so all 11 aircraft then are world war ii era 10 we we got a donation from the ohio history museum four years ago of a late 20s, early 30s, kit-built, home-built aircraft called a Heath Parasol. Oh, neat. It's one of those things that we're not 100% sure what we're going to do with it, but right now the the thinking is that we're going to paint it OD green and make it a little easier to get in and out of and turn it into like kind of like a kid's learning slash play, get in and kick the rudders around, move the stick, and see how the ailerons and elevator move and that kind of stuff. Okay. But everything else is World War II. And are you actively acquiring other aircraft, or just as they turn up, uh, someone calls you and says, "Hey, we've you know found this in like with with the Mustang uh, originally. We've you know as an estate sale, this guy's his past. They're getting rid of everything." Well, we have been really, really fortunate and really lucky to be given a whole lot of stuff. I think we counted as something we've been. If you don't count the airplanes of my father's that he donated. We've been given seven or eight aircraft by outside entities. We, w- we don't have the capital at the time to go out and buy another Warbird project. The reality is that they are way, way more rare, few and far between in 2021 than they were in 2000 or 2001. For example, our Corsair project is a complete nose to tail Corsair. We started working on it. But there's no such thing as a project that complete of an aircraft of that caliber left. Much of what's considered a Warbird project now is a 25 to 50% complete airframe, and the rest of it you got to build from scratch. 
if something came along, we would certainly try and make it happen. But the truth is, we we finished our P40 in 2016. We finished our Focke-Wulf FW190 in 2019. And we've got the Corsair project, which is a humongously complex airplane. It, that's going to keep us busy for quite a very long time. Uh, we've got five or six mechanics. We've got six, some part-time, some full-time, but that's going to keep most of them busy for at least five to six years. Oh probably my gosh. like eight if we're being realistic. Wow. I had no it's, idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've probably put something like 12 to 14,000 hours of labor into it already, which another way of looking at is that's seven working man years. Wow. Uh, we probably got 50,000 left to go. And I, I know, is this, so is that true of any aircraft of that era or is it just warbirds in general? Like, I mean, I don't even know if you have, do you have a DC three? I know that's, those were used extensively. We'd love to have a DC three or a C 47 is the military designation. For that's DC3. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all a matter of the complexity of the design and how big it is. The Corsair was a late war aircraft compared to the rest of what we have. And one of the things they were trying to do, it wasn't just let's make it go faster, let's make it go farther. The other component that was involved was let's make it be built faster so we can have more of them because we don't know how long this war is going to last and we're running out of materials, we're running out of labor, we need to do this as quickly as we can. So Chance Vaught, who designed the Corsair, involved a lot of bleeding edge for the time technology in the name of making them faster to manufacture. One of the primary ones that is a problem for us is they, that was one of the first airplanes to use structural aluminum spot welding. So in the place of drilled holes and rivets, they were just, you know, shooting electricity through two pieces of aluminum and melting them together in that spot. Hmm. That is for someone that's trying to take a thing apart to clean it, replace things that are corroded as necessary, paint it, put it back together, a pretty big problem. If something's riveted together, you just drill the rivet out and the two drill all the rivets out and the two panels will come apart. Two panels are spot welded together. You end up with a hole in one of those panels or realistically a big line or a big section of holes. Huh that didn't used to be there. And so you're going to have to remake one side or the other from scratch. Oh, well, I had no idea. I know that the uh, Corsair was, I believe if I'm recalling this correctly, was also an answer to the faster and more maneuverable zero. Correct. It was, a, it was a great compliment to the zero in okay. the Pacific. And speaking of, uh, and speaking of um, Bob Bob Blacksheep, which by the way, I should probably note to folks that one, you can watch that for free on one of the local stations here, uh, even over the air. And secondly, in, in syndication, it's, it goes by Blacksheep Squadron. The original name was right. Bob Bob Blacksheep. But anyway, I digress. I remember uh, when that show was on, they didn't, they didn't use any zeros in that program because there weren't any. There's only one zero, I think, in the entire world that still exists and they had to use a slightly different plane for all the air combat scenes in black sheep squadron as well as midway and uh and other shows any hope of acquiring anything like that even the the zero's cousin so 
much of the Japanese stuff is gone. So to your point, anytime that there was Japanese aircraft involvement in some sort of Hollywood television movie production, it's almost exclusively been another aircraft made to look like a zero. So where a lot of those aircraft came from was the production of the movie Tora, Tora, Tora. Aha. They took a bunch of T-6s, which are very plentiful. You know, it was a continental U.S.-based aircraft, so the only losses were from accidents, which, to be fair, there were plenty of in training. But you can throw a rock and hit a T-6. They're not very expensive, and so... And they're also the same general configuration, radial, low-wing, as the Zero. So it was not very difficult to make a T-6 for the most part. So so wait, what you're saying now is – so all the Zeros in Tor, Tor, Tor and Midway and Baba Black Sheep are actually American T-6s just painted to look like Zeros? They've got a fair bit of sheet metal work done to – make them look the part but yeah wow i didn't know that i i thought they were uh, i was my understanding it was still a japanese but it was a different japanese aircraft i didn't realize it was not a japanese aircraft at all wow Uh, there there are a couple that are maybe a kate or a val or something that got converted to look like zero but for sure tora 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 and i would guess most of the ones after it were using t6s because they're they're unique. They, you know, no, almost no one's seen a real zero in person. Yeah. Certainly not an airworthy one. And so the the airplanes that got converted stayed like that because they were marketable. They've been used for air shows and stuff like that ever since. I was going to say that that would kind of be worth your while to acquire, wouldn't it? One of the ones from the one of the movie ones, or or no? We kind of entrenched ourselves in the. We're trying to make everything as accurate and true to history as you possibly can okay. so uh we we're kind of pointed in that direction so our p40 is basically indistinguishable from a brand new p40 in 1943 okay which is when it was built there is there's a re, there's probably what you would consider the best most complete zero project left on the planet for sale right now it was in it's in it was in what was Paul Allen of Microsoft's airplane collection in, in Washington. He, it's it's a complete zero that I can't remember exactly what happened. It was captured and we brought it back to the United States to basically dissect, inspect, learn from, understand how they were doing things from case study. And that's how it survived. It ended up getting scrapped by the government 40 some years ago and put in a, in a landfill or a dump in pieces and somebody fortunately decided to save it you know all of these things especially japanese stuff a lot of russian stuff that was built with wood for example you're you're talking about basically just building the airplane from scratch you're Mm. you're the the amount of parts that you're actually going to be able to salvage restore repair and use as end use parts is so small and and there's no like if you wanted to go if you want to build a mustang you can call up a whole bunch of different companies all over the country in the world for that matter and get a lot of stuff because there's enough mustangs there's there's a market for people to engineer and develop replacements you know there's you can go basically order a mustang wing that's built from scratch if you're going to build a zero, you're 
blazing a trail all by herself with very little reference material and things to start with. So you I mean, if you're going to restore a zero, I, I couldn't even hazard to guess at how much it would cost, but it's a big number. That was my same thing with the German aircraft. Yeah. So German and, and Japanese aircraft, one of the reasons they didn't survive is they didn't win the, they didn't win the war. Yeah. The, the, especially the German war machine was wholly dismantled at, at a, in a, you know, concerted effort kind of way. So most of the surviving German stuff is crash site outside of Germany wreckage that got turned back into an airplane. We've got a Focke-Wulf FW-190 that is a reproduction with, you know, maybe 1% or less, maybe even original parts in it. Everything else is built brand new in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then here in our facility. So is it uh, more expensive to acquire things after World War II, like, say, Korean era? Because my father worked on was probably the first – it wasn't the first jet used by the Air Force, but the first one I think that was widely used by the Air Force, in memory serves, the F-86 Sabre. Those are cheap. Really? Yeah. Um, you can get a lot of different Korean era jet stuff for not very much money. One of the reasons is – that early jet stuff was woefully inefficient and the operation costs are outrageous. Additionally, they're a lot, they're a lot more complex as you get more advanced in, in the engineering curve of history, everything gets more and more complicated. And so the maintenance is, I would perceive to be pretty outrageous. The early stuff, like I said, is very inefficient. So in terms of fuel, but also in terms of how much runway it needs to actually start making power. Ah. So early jets required airspeed, air actually going through the engines for them to start making power enough to fly. And so you use a lot of runway before the engine starts making power. So you limit yourself in what sort of airports you can operate in and out of. But one of the big ones is the fuel bills. Pretty pretty spicy. <laughs> yeah, so you you probably wouldn't be looking to acquire one of those then, even the even if the price was right. No, at least for now, we're going to focus on World War II. Okay. And one of the challenges that we face where we are at Claremont County is the airport. The runway here isn't as long as I would like it to be, as it is with older stuff. So unless some sort of miracle happens, which I don't perceive to be very likely the the list of things that can safely get in and out of here is is somewhat limited uh, ideally what how many more feet of runway do you need 12 to 1500 feet would be awesome that doesn't sound like a lot but i guess there's more to it than just laying down some pavement no that would be the very 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 easy part it's a very common story of you put an airport in a place that doesn't have a lot around it and then things grow around it and then they're too close to where new airport, new runway might go. Uh-huh. I see. There's some potential for runway expansion, but it's like you said, there's a lot of little gotchas that make it tough. Do you guys see branching yourselves into helicopters? Are there really I that do many? Not. Yeah, there I guess there weren't that many in world that's the very end of World War Two, get the development of helicopter if I'm Korea and, uh, yeah. and Vietnam, where yeah. the, the real powerful onset of helicopters came in. 
It's funny because if you look at the Cincinnati master plan of 1948, they were mad for helicopters. There were, were helicopters <laughs> everywhere. There was going to be a huge one on the river right next to the bridge. And then we were going to have one out here in Anderson Township. There was going to be one a couple over in like Green Township. And they were going to fly the mail to this one facility by the bridge. And they would fly it out to the Kenton County Airport, which is now CVG. And they were, it was, they were going to be, we were going to be a helicopter city here. And then they just went, nah. <laughs> hindsight being what it is yeah yeah so do you guys ever have like visiting aircraft do other collectors come out and bring their aircraft and sort of loan them to you to have on display there or and and vice versa do you guys ever loan things out and do you still travel to all the air shows in terms of long-term display loans we don't really do that just because of the asset value ah so an example we have three flying single-seat fighters plus the Corsair project. They're all two to $5 million airplanes. So I really like the idea of not having control over what's happening around it, the decision-making that happens near it, that kind of stuff. But we do go to a bunch of air shows. We're going, we're going to be at Lunkin this weekend. Doc, one of the two airworthy B-29s, Flying in the world is in town starting, I think, tomorrow, uh, giving rides. So we're going to fly our B-25 over there. Okay. For their event and, you know, get it out, make some noise with it and let people see it. And in September, this is another one of those funny ways life has of making cool things happen. We have an annual fundraising dinner that is responsible for a little over half of our annual budget that we normally do in June. And in March of 2020, we realized that we had a problem, we had a problem with hosting that event. So it was naively postponed because March, 2020, us thought, Oh, the coronavirus will be gone by August. So we postponed until September and round about June, we realized that, Things weren't progressing in a way that would make a seated indoor 600, 650 person dinner happen. So what we ended up doing was an outdoor socially distanced flying showcase where we took away all the fancy seated dinner, catered meal, tables of 10, all that stuff. We painted a bunch of airplane silhouettes on five acres of grass out in front of our building. And we flew, we had, I think we flew 15 airplanes, ours and outside airplanes coming from, from a couple different places. We made it kid centric. We had the graders truck given out unlimited free ice cream and everybody had a blast. And we decided that, Instead of that just being our stock absolution, the fact that we needed to raise some money, we decided we're going to do that every year. So we're going to do it again this year, and we're going to have a bunch of airplanes come from all over the place and burn a whole bunch of aviation gasoline for three or four hours in September. And that'll be at uh, Claremont County Airport? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, So speaking of... You mentioned that you're located at the Claremont County Airport, and that's pretty easy to find. You just go out 32 past the car dealerships to where it becomes the country, but before Batavia, and you're right about in that neck of the woods. 
Yeah, that's a pretty great way to put it. Right past the car dealership is right before Batavia. You turn right on State Route 74 and okay. follow the signs and you'll find us. Cool. And that's, uh, if I'm looking at memory serves from the website, $12 for adults is what, 7 for kids and veterans? Correct. All right, super. Oh, and I want, what I wanted to ask you, a bit of a personal interest question back to that Corsair. You say it's a Corsair project. Can it still be viewed or is it under wraps while it's still being restored? So that's that's a great question. There's no such thing as under wraps here. Aha. Um, all the work happens in the hangars or in the shops, which are all totally viewable. Uh, so the airplane is out there with a bunch of work tables around it, drawings and parts and pieces of airplane all over the place. So you can definitely see everything. I've got to come see that thing. It's pretty amazing. Uh, we, my dad bought the project in like 2002. Uh, we finished the Mustang and then we started on the Corsair and we, we ended up in inside of like six months acquiring our P40 project and the FW190 project. And both of those were shorter past completion, less complicated things. So we totally paused the Corsair in like 2007. And we just picked it up again following the P40 and FW restorations this spring. And so we probably put 1,200 hours into it since February. uh, And it's starting to make some pretty cool progress. How much much longer? How much longer before it's airworthy again? Uh, I, it's, I get asked that question a lot by people in the museum, board members, etc. And it's it's such an impossible question to answer. I would guess somewhere between forty and 55,000 hours of work. Wow. And it's one person working for a year is roughly 2,000 hours. So if you got five guys working on it, full-time you get 10,000 hours a year but the airplanes require maintenance and annual inspections and so it's nobody's actually working on them 2,000 hours a year so it could be four and a half years it could be eight okay and then you're also on i know you're on facebook you guys on twitter instagram any other social media platforms folks can find you uh you can find us on facebook instagram and twitter twitter's been kind of a flat platform so for us so we don't really use it but pretty active daily on instagram and facebook but. okay cool all righty and uh well i guess that pretty much covers it this is fascinating uh i l- learned a ton and I, I thought i knew quite a bit about my world war ii aircraft the only uh order of business we have left here is uh we let the guest pick a coupon code for our stores and guests can use this coupon code chosen by you to take 20 percent off their next cincyshirts.com or oldschoolshirts.com or they can come into one of our two stores and use it and uh so i will let you david pick that coupon code it could be a small phrase it could be one word what would you like the coupon code to be until the next episode drops uh, i think four words is pretty uh memorable and Appropriate. Perfect. All right. Oh, yeah. And I was going to say, speaking of, I was looking on the website here. Uh, you can just probably Google Warburg Museum. It'll come right up. If you want to type it into your browser the old-fashioned way, it's Tri-State, and Tri-State has a dash, tristatewarburgmuseum.org, and that'll uh, give you all the information you need if you're driving around listening to this and couldn't write any of this down. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Oh, and you're open Wednesdays and Saturdays, right? Correct. 4 to 7 on, on Wednesdays and 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturdays. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to come check you out then. Again, appreciate you doing this, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, David. Bye-bye.
David O'Malley. You know, I always say at the end of these things that I learn a lot, because I do learn a lot, and boy, I really learned a lot in this one. That was fascinating. So uh, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, oh no, by the way, I, uh, the, the playout song I, I struggled with, because uh, it was kind of obvious, even though they don't have a B-29, and the song you're listening to is about a B-29, uh, I figured that would be appropriate. And uh, it's OMD's best tune, my favorite tune of theirs, so, uh, and, and quite uh, the new wave classic. If you only know if you leave, please dig a little deeper. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, simply email podcast at cincyshirts.com, put podcast guest in the subject line, give us a few sentences about why you think that person would be a good guest on the podcast. You can even nominate yourself if you like, if you uh, do something interesting here in the tri-state. As always, if you haven't already, check out those Cincy Shirts podcast archives. I can tell you today's show was produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. Still trying to get that guy on the show so we can discuss why a guy from Philadelphia writes a song about Cincinnati. Rather a dark song, if you've ever heard the whole version. Uh, find it in and the rest of their music in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. I guess it's Apple Music now. It's not iTunes anymore, but I still call it iTunes because I'm old. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and tons more. We've even added two Canadian cities now, Toronto and Montreal. We'll be adding Vancouver soon, I reckon. And uh, you can find all that at oldschoolshirts.com. Same thing as you find at Cincy Shirts, uh, defunct sports teams, old shopping malls, old restaurants, that sort of affair. Uh, like we always like to describe it, like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is WARBIRDS. That's with an S. Apparently we used WARBIRD singular back in February and I don't know why. I think another podcast guest mentioned the uh, the Tri-State Warbird Museum and wanted to use Warbird. So we did. But we're going to use Warbirds for this week's episode with an S. And you can use that on both CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com to get 20% off your entire order. Or go into our stores and over the Rhine or Hyde Park and say, hey, I'd like to use the promo code Warbirds. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.